Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Lance, your host of Yesterday's Concert. Before we get this episode started, I want to take 25 seconds to tell you about my other show, Jam Journals. Jam Journals is a podcast that takes you on a journey through music history, featuring live performances from some of the most iconic concerts of all time. Each episode recounts a different concert experience through a dramatic narrative that brings the memories to life with vivid detail and emotion. Join us as we take a trip down memory lane of some of the most unforgettable concerts in recent history. Jam Journals is available everywhere you get podcasts. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You know, people that have no idea about the Eagles know a lot of those songs. It's like I say in the book, the very first chapter is called Nobody's Favorite Band. And I point out that, uh, of course, there were lots of people that loved the Eagles and thought of them as one of their favorite bands. But I don't think that was, it wasn't like David Bowie or the Beatles or, or, or it was the songs they were fans of. That's what people mainly remember, the songs. Grab your earplugs for another episode of Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode we talk to legendary rock journalist and author Nick Wall. We discuss his newest book, a biography about the Eagles called Life in the Fast Lane, as well as the Eagles' place in the pantheon of classic rock. So I'm here today with the legendary, one of my favorite authors, journalists, writers out there, Mick Wall. Mick, how you doing today, man? I'm very good. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as is traditional on the show, we like to start with some icebreakers. So these are all Eagles themed, as is kind of the topic of the book that you wrote. Uh, so the first one I have for you is, who did Hotel Destruction better, Joe Walsh or Keith Moon? Oh, well, that's like saying, you know, who was better, McEnroe or Connors? Um, <laughs> uh, Keith Moon certainly pioneered a lot of that stuff. Um, but Keith, I think, didn't turn up with a particular plan. He turned up just to have fun. Joe, you know, his first tour with the Eagles, he showed up with a chainsaw. I'd say that was a different league of thinking <laughs> to Keith, but but obviously he was building on that solid foundation of destruction that, that Keith had, 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 had laid. Either one of those would have been, and you were also on the rampage, you know, either one of those would have been a, a long night. Yeah, sure. I would hate to have been their neighbors. So, uh, <laughs> second question Don Henley, he is often talked about for his vocals, his lyrics, his harmonies. I think it gets overshadowed that he was a drummer. So, on a scale mm. of one to 10, how would you rate his drumming? Five. Okay. About <laughs> <Not> midway. <laughs> Well, uh, well, listen, I'm not a drummer, so it's really not fair for me to judge. But uh, what I would say is that um, 
I don't think anybody, like you just said, I don't think anybody admires Don for his drumming, but he has an amazing voice and he writes amazing songs. And that is his defining characteristic. That's what brought him that big mountain that he owns out in California somewhere. Um, but as a drummer, I mean, meh, you know, I mean, put him next to Keith Moon and see how you get on. <laughs> well, I mean, would you put him, would you rank him above like Ringo? Or do you think he's... No, really? no, 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 no. Ringo is a great drummer. Oh, I agree. Ringo is a proper, proper drummer. I mean, you listen to the drums on Ticket to Ride. Um, I mean, you can name any of those tracks, but I, I always think of that one because when it comes up occasionally on my phone, uh, I just can't get over the drums. It's just magnificent, perfect. And of course, that stuff would have been recorded in the days of real-time drumming and recording on two-track, four-track at the most. So no, 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 no. Ringo's way up there for me. Yeah, mm, I love it. Okay, so next question. Both of these are controversial bands to some degree in terms of how they're viewed, especially today. So in retrospect, whose music is cooler, the Eagles or Steely Dan? That is a tough one. It is. Um, well, cooler for me would be Steely Dan. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're talking very, very sophisticated music. We're talking uh, two guys that hired the finest session musicians they could get. Um, but they didn't play any favors. They they would hire guitarists and horn players and all kinds of people. But they'd hire 12 or 15, and they would do 12 or 15 until they found the one guy that could do what they wanted. Um, very jazz-influenced, a lot of mathematics going on in that music. So for me, Steely Dan are on a, on a, a much higher level than most rock bands. But... You know, Steely Dan never wrote Hotel California or, or or Lying Eyes or Life in the Fast Lane or Best of My Love or Take It Easy. I mean, I, I think in a way, I wouldn't compare the two. They came at a similar time, and I'm sure they shared a lot of the same audience, particularly in the early to mid-70s. But I think Steely Dan, you know, have an inbuilt cool that goes beyond whether you're a fan or whether you like a particular record. Whereas the Eagles are in a different stratosphere. I mean, they, you know, people that have no idea about the Eagles know a lot of those songs. It's like I say in the book, you know, right at the beginning of the book, the very first chapter is called Nobody's Favorite Band. Um, and I point out that, uh, of course, there were lots of people that loved the Eagles and thought of them as one of their favorite bands. But I don't think that was, it wasn't like David Bowie or the Beatles or, or, or it, it was the songs they were fans of. And I think that's what people mainly remember the songs. No, I love it. That's fantastic. So I've got two more questions, icebreakers, and we'll jump into the conversation. In your opinion, what's the most underrated Eagles album? Probably the long run. Mm, I agree. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hadn't listened to it for decades until I was working on the book. And I couldn't even remember any of those songs. I, I knew I would when I heard them again. But then listening to them, you know, and, and kind of trying to evaluate and think about what was going on there, 
there are some great songs on there. Um, but, you know, coming as it did right at the end of that decade, and, and also in the shadow of Hotel California, it's like saying Tusk by Fleetwood Mac coming after Rumours. You know, Tusk was a great album, but hey, man, Rumours. You know, you just can't get past that. And same with the Eagles. And I think also by then there was a kind of a shadow in perception. They were in the perception of the Eagles. There was already, it was already bleeding at the edges and people were regarding them as, um, in those days, as this kind of overindulgent LA crazy, almost like a cult, you know, like you, you couldn't possibly relate unless you were also a multi-millionaire cocaine addict that could write immortal songs. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just, it never, I think most people think Hotel California was the last album, you know, if they think about it at all. I think they can tell you all about the story up to that point in terms of the songs, I mean, and the, the records. Long Run, I mean, the, the track itself, The Long Run, is great. I mean, there are a couple of tracks on there that I, I think are terrible. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely overlooked, misunderstood. I mean, it still sold a hell of a lot of copies. That was actually the first Eagles album I bought, and it was on the basis of I didn't recognize any of the songs on it. Because, I mean, I knew all the radio hits, and when I was looking through the CDs, I was like, I don't, I don't know any of these songs. I should get this one to listen to it. And that this was when CDs were like, at their most expensive peak. And it was, I spent all this money on the CD. I'm going to make sure that I like it. And so I listened to it ad nauseum to the point where it grew on me to the point that I did like it a lot. And I do like it a lot still. That, so that's, that's a fantastic answer. So my last one, and then we'll jump into the conversation. When was the first time you saw the Eagles live, assuming you have? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it would have been the long run tour. Okay. And it was in America. In Oklahoma, would you believe? Of all places. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was a real big, I mean, I, I'd, I think I'd only, I'd only been to America once or twice before working as a music journalist. And that was New York and LA. So to find myself driving out, well, there was a few of us, driving out in an open top car to Oklahoma, playing the, I mean, I mean, it was on the radio. You didn't even need to have a, in those days, a cassette tape, you know. Uh, and the whole experience for, for a pasty limey, you know, was just, uh, it was just beyond, beyond. I mean, it was just fantastic. And there were lots of sort of people with keg parties going on out of the back of their trucks and lots of women without any tops on and really hot, sunny day and big, everything big. I mean, it was just incredible, you know. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about the show itself? Like, how was the performance? Well, back then, yeah. Oh God, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Do you have any idea how many shows I've seen since then? That was 43, 44 years ago. I, I remember the day. Uh, that's what I remember. But then, you know, the first time I went to America was with Black Sabbath. I was their PR. I was their public publicity guy, and we stayed. It was, uh, and they were doing two nights at Madison Square Garden. Um, with Blue Oyster Cult, and we stayed at the Waldorf Astoria, and I was given a limousine because I brought journalists with me. I, I was given a, a limousine, 
to take everybody around, show them a good time. I remember so much about that trip. Now, ask me what they were like on stage. I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, they were like, they were Black Sabbath. I'm sure they were very, very good. I mean, the Eagles, similarly, I mean, they pretty much do the same. I mean, the Eagles aren't the Rolling Stones. You know, they they don't run around much. It, it, you know, it's not like, oh, that was the night when, you know, Glenn Frey took out his cock and baited the audience and <laughs> heavy Jim Morrison vibes and, <laughs> and Felder set fire to his guitar. You know, they just stood there and played and sang and the whole place went completely hog wild. Uh, I think I, that's that's what I remember most is being in that spot at that time. Uh, yeah. No, that's fantastic. I love it. I mean, and that's something I talk about a lot too is in the concerts I've gone to, it, it seems like the things that surround the concert often matter more than the actual concert itself. I, I mean, it seems like they're so they're so part of our life. Like I think about, I went to see the band Beach House last year and the next morning I was going to sleep in and instead, I was awoken to my wife telling me she was pregnant. And so ah. I remember that <laughs> way more than I do the concert. I mean, it, but that's kind of like you talking about the drive to Oklahoma and the things around it. That's what really stands out to you more than the performance itself. So I, I think that's an actual beautiful statement. Well, you know, I've got this fantastic American DJ. I won't um, embarrass you by trying to do the accent. But that whole, you know, it's 98 degrees, you know, you're listening to and and just that whole rap. It was like yes, yes, California Eagles. And I I, do, I tell you one one thing I did I do remember thinking was because at that time, you know, punk and new wave had kind of affected a sort of a ground zero approach here in the UK, and bands like the Eagles or Journey or those kind of bands in the UK at that time were just regarded as, you know, completely bad taste. You know, they were still wearing flared jeans and and they had long hair and beards. I mean, come on, man, you know. And, of course, I, I was a very young man still and I understood completely where that was coming from. But I remember sitting in this car, <laughs> listening to the radio, this guy just playing back-to-back eagles and doing his amazing DJ rap. And I thought, you know, if those people in the UK could be here right now, they would get it. They would get it. It's an American experience. I mean, I think the the Eagles are one of the most American bands. Um, I don't think they could have happened anywhere else. In the book, I, I do a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff about LA in the 70s. The, I don't think the Eagles could have happened at any other time. Not the 60s, not the 80s. I mean, those songs, the best of those songs would have been hits any time. But they wouldn't have been written and performed and, and presented that way unless you'd already been through the 60s and before you get to the 80s. So it was kind of that sweet spot where uh, at that time as well in the 70s, people talk about the golden age of, of movies, Hollywood, new Hollywood, Coppola, Scorsese. Music was even more important than that in the 70s. Music was truth to power. Uh, we had very high uh, expectations of our favorite artists. We looked up to them and we waited for the word 
You know, we wanted to know, if you want to know what's going on, well, you better get the new record, you know, not just for the music, but for the word, you know. And I think the Eagles absolutely crystallized that whole thing. And, and it was one of the reasons that, you know, people like David Crosby always hated them. Because I think in the, in the book, there was a phrase I came up with, which I thought, uh, by accident, but I thought really summed it up. You know, Crosby and 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 Joni and the birds and the flying burrito brothers, Graham Parsons, all that scene, you know, they were pioneers. They were going where no man had been before. Country and rock. You know, well, the, the Eagles weren't pioneers. They were the children. They were set, they were settlers. You know, uh, they were natives of this new world and they didn't have the same, isn't this amazing consciousness. Uh, they wanted to be a rock and roll band. They wanted to make money. Uh, there was no limit on the amount of money they wanted to make, no limit on the amount of success. And at that moment in history, you know, after the permissive society of the 60s, the pill, grow your hair, anti-Vietnam, the whole thing, Ali, King, Hendrix, Beatles, you know, that was a hell of a time. The 70s, well, what are the kids doing now? And what are the kids doing now is they're not getting into that other stuff. They want to just enjoy this shit. And the Eagles were outsiders. You know, they, they completely exemplified the 70s at a time in LA when people still thought the 60s were you know, but they, you know, Led Zeppelin, for all their stardom in California, were not liked or approved of by, you know, the Neil Young, Crosby, the, I mean, to Robert Plant's distress, because he loved all that stuff. Page didn't give a shit, but um, I've gone up my bum here again. I forgot. No, I love it, dude. Like, I just, <laughs> like, this is the kind of stuff, like, I love hearing, like, classic rock discourse. I mean, like, this stuff is just what fuels me. But I mean, that's what, kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier, like, I agree that the Eagles simply could not have existed in any other decade. I think they could have existed in the 2010s with the revival of Americana that we've kind of seen, but I think they would be just another drop in the bucket. I don't think they would be like, I don't think their songs would have the impact that they did in the Ooh, 70s. It's a bold statement. I'll my say friend. it. I'll say it. Listen, if Wilco had written one of these nights, we'd all be talking about Wilco still. You know, instead, no one could name you a single song unless they were a Wilco fan. It's like saying if the Beatles had come along in the 2010s, all those early hit, I want to hold your hand and, and that stuff, it would just sound so cheesy and bogus. Would it? I mean, I mean, obviously the production, yes, but you, you cannot, you know, there's a saying in the music business, you can't polish a turd. And these were not turds, you know. Whatever way you looked at it, this was one-off quality. And I personally think, I mean, I think that's why they're still, that's why their greatest is still being bought. I think I was coming at it more from the perspective of the Americana scene is so, for one thing, American music specifically is so niche now. Everything is so in its own category and you have your own little niche fandoms here and there. But then it's also with the Americana scene, I feel like it's so oversaturated and it's been muddled down by all the lumineers and all those. Well, well I'll tell you what, 
I think I think there's an interesting comparison there with the Laurel Canyon scene, the early seventies, and the Eagles pushed against that, pushed back on that hugely. And I think if they had come along in the Americana scene, I think they would have been regarded as inauthentic in the same way because they weren't interested in being niche or they didn't want to be cut. You know, the reason, you know, um, Bernie Ledden in the end leaves is kicked out is because he wants to still play the banjo and he and he's an amazing player of any stringed instrument. The guy is amazing, but that isn't... They wanted to be Led Zeppelin. They wanted to be the Rolling Stones. And, and, and if they'd come along in that Americana scene, I think they'd have been like, okay, this is our entry point uh, to make ourselves known, introduce ourselves. This authenticates us to a degree. But there's another saying in the music business, art for art's sake, hit singles for fuck's sake. Because that is your flag. And all the most important artists even Dylan, you know, all the most important artists that have had huge commercial success recognize that. I think, I mean, even Led Zeppelin, even though they consciously position themselves as anti-singles, you still had whole lot of love. You still had Stairway to Heaven. I mean, uh, Trampled Underfoot uh, did, did pretty good in America. I mean, they were. it was at a time when album music ruled, so you, you heard a lot of Led Zeppelin. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I personally think if Stairway to Heaven came out in 2012, would we be going, eh, sounds a little old-fashioned? You know, I, I don't think we would. Or, or, I mean, it might sound a little old-fashioned, but I still think the essence of it would be extraordinary in the same way Bridge Over Troubled Water, you know, All You Need Is Love or Let It Be or, or uh, Brown Sugar. You know, or, I mean, I just think these things defy the moment in a way. And, and and that's why people are still buying these songs. You know, I mean, Elton John, you know, Elton John just uh, did a show here last Sunday. Uh, and it's supposed to be his final ever show in the UK at the Glastonbury Festival. And um, I've got kids. My youngest daughter, she's 20. And uh, I was just messing around with them the other day. We didn't watch the show. They, they, they didn't, you know. But she knows I'm still standing, your song, Candle in the Wind. Um, oh, God, you know. And, of course, the stuff with Dua Lipa and all the other things. Because of the songs. Because of the songs. And I think with the Eagles, that's where they wanted to be. You know, we come in the country rock garb because right now that is the in thing to do. Um, but that isn't our, you know, it's like the Beatles came in wearing suits and ties. You know, well, once they got to a position where they didn't need to please everybody all the time, that shit went out the window and they carried on, they became even more who they really, really were. So um, I, I d definitely put the Eagles in that sort of category, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I mean, I, I'm thinking about like the pantheon of rock stars where you have like the Led Zeppelin, the Who, the Beatles, all these big bands. And to me, the Eagles are such an outlier in the sense that, you know, they're not like those other guys. Like if you're listening to classic rock radio and you hear peaceful, easy feeling, whatever it is on the radio, it doesn't sound like a whole lot of love or anything like that. So how did... How did they fit into that pantheon so well? 
Peaceful, Easy Feeling. I mean, that you know, that's the first album, uh, their second hit in America. I, I, they didn't. Simple answer is they didn't at that point. But by the time you get to one of these nights, at that point, they are a rock band. They are competing at the same level as Zeppelin, The Who, The Stones. One of the reasons I think, a big reason, and, and this goes back to the first chapter, which is uh, nobody's favorite band. What the Eagles lacked, that all the others had, were charismatic frontmen. No Jagger, no Plant, no Daltrey and Townsend. There's no one windmilling or smashing guitars. Uh, the Eagles, the Eagles just came out of that period where the ba- where the band uh, and and that kind of vibe. It was back to the garden, you know. It was it was turn your back on the audience and twenty minute jams. It's the Allman Brothers. It's 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 a different world. It's anti star. And the Eagles, like the band, um, uh, turned that into a virtue, turned that into our images. We don't have an image. Our images, we let the songs speak for themselves, which is great. But no one, no one knew what they look like, who's the main guy, which one is the Lennon, which one is McCartney. There isn't. That you know, it's just these four really nondescript-looking dudes uh, making this remarkable music. I mean, I in my research, I was looking at quite a few TV appearances they did in the sort of first half of the seventies. Just these hairy guys strumming guitars, but great vocals, great harmonies, fantastic, uh, catchy songs with clever lyrics. Uh, I mean, they were the full, uh, as, as music, they were the absolute full package. But as a uh, pantheon, Fleetwood Mac had Stevie Nicks. The Eagles didn't have anyone. You know, the, the, what was their best shot? Glenn Frey? I mean, you know, God bless him. But he looked like the guy that pumped gas into your car. You know? <laughs> he, he, he didn't look like, oh, man, I'd like to hang out with that guy. You know, uh, it was... Uh, yeah, that'll be 30 bucks, you yeah. know. <laughs> and get away, don't steal anything. And I think I think as time went on, and, you know, Rolling Stone didn't like them, and over here, the enemies equivalent over here, ugh, awful. Oof. They only do it for the money. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> who would have, who ever heard of that? Yeah. I mean, it always gets conflated to me because it's like, that's a, that's a pursuit as a career. Why would you not want to make more money? Like, it seems it's such a silly thing to like, oh, you're a sellout. Well, that's the point, man. The point's to make money. Like, yeah, you could talk about the art. You can make art and still make money. But like, who cares? That was the point, man. Like, lay off of it. Uh, and when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, first buying albums, um, I liked it if people I was into got big because it kind of validated the whole experience and, and made it even more exciting. Man, Rod Stewart's on TV. Yeah, this is when he was good, you know, in the 70s. <laughs> my God, look at Elton John. Oh, my God, it's, uh, it's. Oh, I can't think now. But um, but the Eagles came along, you know, where that kind of Little Feet vibe. I mean, Little Feet, again, they had Lyle George. I mean, I mean, he wasn't a sexy-looking dude, 
but he was a handsome, charismatic fellow. And I just don't think the Eagles really ever had that. Joe Walsh brought in uh, some glamour. I wanted to bring him up because, I mean, and it's kind of a two-part question. It's like, you know, Joe Walsh, I think he was kind of the savior for that band in a lot of ways because, I mean, one, he brought that cool that I think elevated them into that rock pantheon because without him, I don't think they would have had the Hotel California. But he also, I mean, he added that kind of grit to them that kind of put a little bit more of a, he gave them some cred where they wouldn't have had cred otherwise. Absolutely. And Joe had no problem whatsoever with being one of the biggest rock stars on the planet. I mean, he had a great sense of humor. You know, if you if you listen to his songs like Life's Been Good, I mean, that's still one of my favorite songs because the lyrics are just tremendous. Uh, very, very uh, funny, self-deprecating, but very knowing. I don't think the Eagles had that at all until he came along. They had the brilliant lyrics, but they didn't have that little kind of, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. human, <laughs> we know, okay? Yeah. No one else knows, we know. Joe brought that, and 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 also, of course, an incredible guitar. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. That was that was when they became a fully fledged rock band. But again, I mean, looking at those old clips, um, they were also coked out of their brains, especially Joe, but, but all of them. That there's a kind of an ugly tension to a lot of it as well. Uh, I mean, you see them now, and Joe, uh, you know, still makes the gag about about how old he is and all this kind of stuff. He's very nice and very funny. But back then, there's a clip of him where someone's thrown a, a, you won't remember, you're too young, but back in the 70s at American shows, people threw a lot of cherry bombs and crazy shit, quaaluded out of their mind. and. And he tells the audience off, you know, all right, one more cherry bomb and we're going home. You know, it was really kind of, there's no one smiling. There was no kind of uh, vibe. It was, will you fucking stop, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're leaving because we don't give a shit, okay? We're the Eagles. We don't actually need you. Now, um, whether they did or they didn't, I mean, it, it, it was kind of implicit. You know, it wasn't like, oh, good old Joe, like it is now. It was fucking hell, you know? Someone's going to get their ass kicked in a minute, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, you talking about like being so coked out. Like, I, I read Don Felder's autobiography a couple years ago. And one of the things he was talking about was how tight Frey was about the live performance and how it had to sound like the record and how they were so particular about the sound of the live show. How did they do it? How did they keep it all together when they were so coked out of their mind and like all that stuff? Well, I mean, the thing about Coke is it, it keeps you on track, you know, uh, for that two hours. It, the other 22 hours will be hell. But when you're on stage and you're you're in, down amongst the weeds, as they say, and you're thinking about the sound, and they had great harmonies. I think I think that was that was something that you couldn't build in the laboratory. You know, that wasn't something you could invent or, or I mean, you could, could work on it and make it a little better. But they really had that. And I remember seeing them in the 90s uh, at Wembley in, in London and just being astonished at how good those vocals were. I mean, obviously, these days, the, the dirty little secret for all bands is that, you know, 
they got a lot of, they get a lot of technical help shall we say but back then it was for real uh, and there's something you know music is the greatest form of expression really i mean i'm a writer i'm not a musician so to me it's books and words but the fact is books and words have to step aside when here comes music because it goes beyond words it goes beyond what do i think this is good do i think this is bad <laughs> music hits you and, and and it's not about deciding it's about knowing and it brings memories and all kinds of sensory visions and it's just it's overpowering and the eagles for sure for sure uh, locked into that and I, and i think cocaine could be any drug i guess but particularly cocaine particularly in those days it was um it was the icing on the cake i know i don't mean the pun but it was <laughs> you know I, i i started out in the business in 77 everybody did coke when i started doing pr for a company called heavy publicity this is 1979 78 79 um we did journey sticks ario speed wagon dire straits black sabbath all kinds of stuff and if you turned up for a meeting at the label or with the manager or promoter or whatever if you turned up and you didn't bring coke it was considered bad form <laughs> i mean it was just it was just yeah but this is a days when everybody smoked cigarettes so you know if you took i don't know i know i know america's a little different but over here you if you took out a cigarette you offered it to everybody and everybody would take one we used to and he's up at the gig with the band and you got no coke well, what fucking good are you to anybody you know you're supposed to be my pr and you don't have coke you know the journalists would expect you to 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 give them a little bump you know um and we used to bill the bands back for this and on the invoice it would say champagne and flowers for the band you know 2000 bucks you know whatever um cocaine was it was champagne it was it was uh, all like an antique oh where did you get that lovely lamp you know oh uh, this comes from a, the period in venice of you know, and cocaine would be like oh no it's bolivian you see it's bolivian Gr- grown on that side of the mountain the leaf and the but in la of course you're you're talking you know 100 times more and and you if you're the eagles it's just your trip it's like it's like hendrix and acid you know how, what would his music have sounded like if he'd never done acid different eagles that is cocaine music the same as rumors you know this is cocaine music but brought to you by master musicians that have kind of invented cocaine music you know um and so i think i think you know these days we think oh god drug oh, is fucked up he needs rehab you know i uh, i remember being on the road with uh, black sabbath and one of the guys uh, fell ill you know meaning he'd be up for about 5 days and uh, it was like oh man shit wow you know sit down have a, a have a really large jack daniels I'll put you out two or three lines of coke and you'll be okay. That was it. That was 
that was a caring, sharing, right thing to do back then. And so I think they just were super focused. I mean, also, they're still young. I mean, you know, you can do this stuff in your 20s. And, and also, they don't have to get up in the morning. If, if, if it needs be, they can be carried onto the plane, you know. So I, I, it's very much the year. I mean, I, I remember being so coked out of my brain for about two years that I hated it because there was no way out because everybody did it. And if you didn't, it was kind of like, uh, I don't think there's an equivalent now because we're allowed to be, it's encouraged to be your own deal, you know? But I mean, I, I, I'm not anymore, but I, I was vegetarian for about 13 years, beginning in the 80s. And people used to say to me, oh, but you don't eat meat. Why? Like, why? Fuck you, why? But you'd find <laughs> yourself explaining, you know. Um, and in those, same with cigarettes. Uh, you'd offer someone a cigarette and say, oh, I don't smoke. And you go, you don't smoke? Oh, why? You know, is there a, there's a problem? Uh, you know, so that was cocaine. Uh, if you offered it out and someone said, oh, no, thank you, it was really like, yeah, but this is the good, this is the Bolivian. Come on, what are we here for if not this? Um, and also, don't forget, and I think this is, you know, there is a lot of truth to this, but people love the black and white world. But the truth is, is that human beings expanding their consciousness experimenting with different layers of reality or consciousness in the pursuit of artistic greatness is a tradition that has existed for millennia, all the way back to the medicine man, you know, uh, tripping out on Yage or whatever, uh, or in this country, you know, the, 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 the poultices and the herbs that the local witch lady would make for you, the wise lady, you know, um, th these are th these are not new things. It's just that in the by the time we get to the seventies, it feels in those days like we're in the future. You know, we have conquered venereal disease, and if you do, uh, we don't even wear condoms because hey, you just get an abortion. There's the, what, there was no sense of oh, that sounds a bit fuck that. Just go get one. What's wrong with you, dude? Uh, these lines will be waiting for you when you get back, you know. Um, it just was a different way of looking at things. And I had that as a writer. I think many writers and musicians and artists, painters, filmmakers, whatever, you, you just need to somehow just something to trigger you into that zone where you can be creative. And when you're working on something day in, day out, weeks, months, years, you know, that can be very, very useful to have something like that. It's just that obviously you're playing with fire. So, no, that's, I mean, and I think, I think my perspective of it is colored, but from reading the Aerosmith biography, the oral history, where they talk about the late 70s, early 80s, where they were also drugged out and the performances were sucking. And then you go listen to the bootlegs from that era and they are terrible performances. I mean, they really <laughs> are bad. And so that's, I've always conflated that Aerosmith's perspective on something like the Eagles. Because, I mean, and I think too, part of my perspective is colored from, I've only seen them once and it was in 2009. So it was well past their prime. But I just remember sitting there thinking, this is the best live show 
I've ever heard in the sense of it's the sound production. It was crystal clear. Every note was exactly where it was supposed to be. And putting that in the reference of what Don Felder said in his autobiography, it, it just confused me as a, how could they do that in the 70s? Well, the truth is they didn't do that in the 70s. The difference is in the 70s, there weren't any mobile phones with cameras, no internet. Uh, the internet was going to the show. That was the jungle drums, you know. Uh, that was the network then, was other people that would go to the show, all those sorts of shows. And there would be lots of lousy gigs. I mean, the Stones did a million lousy gigs. You know, the Beatles didn't have the equipment, so a lot of their gigs were just terrible to be at unless you were a screaming girl. Led Zeppelin, my God, man, they did some absolute terrible gigs. But then there came the good night. I mean, a friend of mine, Ian Jeffrey, he, he these days, he's a tour manager, and, and these days uh, it'll be U2 or Lady Gaga. But back in the 70s, he was the tour manager for ACDC when, when Bon Scott was the singer. And and he said that, and, and, in, and in between lots of other major acts, but he said the difference between now and then, the 70s, was he said every single night, you had no idea how it was going to go because it wasn't just your performance, your sound guy. You're using the building's sound system often, their amps, their PA. Um, the rooms are all different. And he said it was a battle. And at the end of it, if you'd had a great gig, it really, really, really was amazing because you knew it could have just gone so bad and might do tomorrow. He said, but by the time he was doing U2 in like the, the 2010s, um, he said, you push a button and then we all go and have dinner while they uh, do their thing. Because everything is production now. And that includes backing vocals. That includes, if you want it, help with the lead vocal. I say help. I mean, you can have a hundred percent help, you know. It's, I, I smell what you're stepping in. So I'm not surprised the Eagles sounded better in 2009 because everybody did. But back then as well, you know, you're talking about a world where I know this didn't happen often with the Eagles, but quite often there'd be two albums a year, uh, singles every three months, and you saw them. You saw them play last night. Uh, we're going again in November. There was more of a sense of oh, I didn't particularly like that album. But I love the band. And then there's another album in six, seven, eight months. It just, it felt uh, less, everything had to be perfect. It wasn't really about that. There was a, a sense of, um, well, we didn't know any better. We didn't know any better. It's just great to be there. I mean, one of the things I noticed when I first became a PR and would be touring um, and I was guilty of this myself before I, I, I saw it from the other perspective. You know, after the show, each, it doesn't matter what band it was, or, or huge venue, small venue, UK, America, Europe, wherever. After the show, at a certain point, in come the guests, the liggers. Uh, and that I guarantee you, I think in all my years, I don't think I've ever heard anyone ever say to an artist, that was terrible, you know. Man, you sucked tonight, you know. But they would come and go, oh, it would be the best gig they'd ever seen. I've seen you 200 times, and that's that's definitely the best. And 
But I promise you, 10 minutes before we'd open that door in the dressing room, they'd be screaming at each other, uh, firing each other, punching each other. That was the worst fucking gig we've ever done, you fucking asshole. I told you. I fucking told I warned you it wouldn't work. Oh, hi. It definitely was a different world, and I definitely saw a lot of gigs that sucked. Um, but it was it wasn't exceptional. It wasn't exceptional. So I guess my answer would be I'm sure the Eagles did a lot of terrible gigs and, and I'm sure they did a lot of great ones because that was the way it was back then. That's fantastic. Well, I have one more question and this one's, I'll just say it. So I, I was reading in a, a thread just some unpopular opinions about classic rock and I wanted to get your take on this one that really stood out to me. And I think you've already kind of addressed it, but I want to ask it anyway. The only reason we still talk about classic rock songs today is because of clever marketing for classic rock radio. What's your opinion on that? No, that's not the only reason. I go back to my famous music business quote, you can't polish a turd. If the songs were turds, you could market the shit out of them. No one would care. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great art, TV, music, whatever, that goes completely unnoticed uh, because it isn't marketed and promoted things are much more narrow and divided now. We don't live in a broadcast age where you and I are going to watch the same show or listen to the same records. You could, your favorite band could be someone I've never heard of, you know. The real reason people still love these songs is because people love great songs. And great songs are timeless. They are timeless. You know, Elvis doing Jailhouse Rock, you know, it could be another 50 years from now. That will still be a fucking great record. Uh, name any Stones, Zeppelin, Who, Eagles. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. If this music wasn't so great, and it was made to be universal, it was made to, uh, to have the broadest possible appeal whilst retaining uh, a musical identity. Uh, there was nothing really generic about the greats. You know, the Who weren't... You couldn't go, is that the Who or is that Led Zeppelin? You know, you could, is that the Eagles or is that Elton John? You know, is it, you knew, or Fleetwood Mac. You, you knew who that was. They had a signature sound. They wrote immortal songs. Did that make them good people? Of course not, you know. But that didn't make good people of the Beatles or Zeppelin or anybody else either. Yeah, we can all do great work. It doesn't mean we are great people. The Eagles' misfortune was to come from a time when people thought that was the case. You know, if, if we can't love you unless we think you are an amazing person, you know. You know, we, we now know that ship sailed a long time ago, and, and rightly so. No one should be judged like that. Just show me what you got, and I'll decide whether I like it. Um, and, and it's as simple and as complicated as that. And, and the Eagles, like all the greats, managed to come up with songs that I don't care who you are or what year it is, when Hotel California comes on, you listen. I must have heard that song a zillion times. But I can't help but listen when it comes on because it's just so fucking good. Mm. <laughs> I love it. Well, hey, Mick, this has been 
a fantastic conversation. I have loved hearing your stories. I could listen to them all day. Thank you so much for chatting today. Your book, Life in the Fast Lane, The Eagle's Reckless Ride Down the Rock and Roll Highway. It's going to, by the time this is released, it'll be everywhere. Everybody can read it where they want to read it. Fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I'm not quite done, but I'm going to finish it soon. Thank you so much for chatting today. Listen, I enjoyed every single moment, Lance, anytime, anytime. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for listening to another episode of my show. For more live music podcasting, check out our other show, Jam Journals. If you're feeling kind, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And check us out on all the social media platforms. Email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com or visit our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. So until next time, give us a subscribe, tell your friends, and most importantly, take care of your shoes. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.